Father, we thank you that you have called us out of the world, out of darkness, into your marvelous light. And you've collected us together here in this society of believers, this holy nation, this royal priesthood, this spiritual kingdom on earth. Lord, we thank you that we have a bastion, we have a bulwark, we have a place where we can rest our souls. We have uh, fellow believers that we can love and fellowship with and talk about you and glory in Christ. As we gather this morning together to study a saint, Lord, that you redeemed from a great pit of sin and error, heresy, may we rejoice in your work in this man's life. And may we be encouraged to be more like Newton in the lives of others. And may we be useful, Lord, in this way in your kingdom. Help us now. Help the teacher in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so third of three lessons on Thomas Scott. Some resources there for you. Again, Life of Reverend Thomas Scott, written by John Scott. Thomas Scott's own uh, work on his life, The Force of Truth. And then if you have John Newton's uh, works, I didn't see you're here, April. Um, the works of John Newton. Uh, he's got some stuff in the back there. So, so far we've covered several things, but we're going to, last time we, we covered five kind of a gleanings from John Newton, how he interacted with Thomas Scott. I'm going to follow up this lesson with the next five and then get into Scott's conversion and then his curate or his pastorate at Olney and then some of his works. And you may be surprised at some of the people he's influenced. So uh, Newton and Scott exchanged about eight letters, again, between one another. And you're going to see something <clears throat> interesting about Scott. He was uh, a fiery man to begin with, but he fizzled out about halfway through. He, uh, he couldn't defeat Newton's resolve to be a loving man. And so the last time we were together, we talked about a few things that Newton was in this uh, battle with Scott. He was a man who trusted in God's sovereignty. That made him a very patient man, a very uh, calm-hearted man. But Newton was also a holy man. Um, he was disinclined for war, theological war. Um, and he backed up with his life what he said with his mouth. He was also a man who received sinners warmly. Um, he received Scott at every turn, and he never rejected him. We're going to see a little more of this unfold as well as we get into the, the, the next points. He also considered Scott's character his peculiar character. He considered what kind of man Scott was. And we, we glean from that, you know, as we deal with people and their souls, it's not a one-size-fits-all approach a lot of times. Sin is sin in everyone's life. But some, some people have bents toward different sins that we have to be aware of. And then finally, Newton was a man who recognized that coming to the truth is a process. Uh, we know that about our own selves. We didn't arrive where we are right now, overnight. Uh, we were a work in progress. The Lord was <clears throat> patient with Newton, and Newton was patient with Scott as well. So those are some of the things we covered last time. But I wanted to cover five more things that I learned in reading this interaction between Newton and Scott. Newton was a man who knew how to hold in balance primary and secondary matters. Now, I do think it's a, there are certain marks of spiritual immaturity and really spiritual anxiety. 
And one of those marks is expressed in someone who thinks that everything is on fire. Everything is on fire. Uh, You've probably met this kind of person. They think um, anyone who disagrees with them has to be corrected immediately, and every question they have must be answered. Sometimes you you see this in this person, the sentiment, um, hold on while I type this, someone is wrong on the internet. And so they're they're out there just um, taking on hell with a water pistol. So, but we would confess that not all things in Scripture are alike plain and obvious to us. There are certain things in Scripture that are more difficult to understand. But those things that are necessary to be known among us uh, and believe for salvation are plain in Scripture. So a few things that really stuck out in this interaction between Newton and Scott was this. He laid aside creedal and subscription matters for a time. Newton was a man of a confession. He was a man who was of a hearty confession. But in this interaction with Scott, it, he seemed to have a, a uh, Scott at least, seemed to have a deep aversion to anything creedal or subscription as a Christian. Uh, Scott was on a search for truth, but he found it difficult to accept something like the Athanasian Creed. That creed is, is pivotal in our understanding of the Trinity as theology developed over the ages. And he was kind of that guy where you would meet him and you would think, this guy just thinks there's no creed but Scripture. You know, uh, We can't express uh, faith in any other words but what the Bible says explicitly. And one wonders how he even accepts his, his own prayers at that point. But uh, Newton wisely replied to Scott. He said, if you consider yourself a learner and that it's possible under the Spirit's increasing illumination, you may hereafter adopt some things which at present you cannot approve. I should think it too early as yet to prescribe to yourself rules and determinations for the government of your future life. Should it be the will of God to appoint you to a new path of service, he may sooner than you are aware quiet your mind and enable you to subscribe with as full a persuasion of mind as you now object to subscription. So you have this picture of Scott being this man just totally averse to anything about a confession or a subscription to certain creeds or articles. And Newton says, I've traveled this path before you. I've been that kind of man. I see what you want, but I can't give that thing to you. And so Newton, in their debate, in their interactions together, he laid aside issues of creedal and subscription matters for a time. He wasn't a man who planted his flag there. He waved the point, you may be interested to know this, he waved the point of predestination and election. Now, as Calvinists, that's ground that we have wrestled over and probably are still wrestling over. We've got bloody knees over those doctrines. We've got skin in the game there. We've departed uh, friendships, some of us, over those things. But it may be shocking to you to know that in this debate, Newton waived the point of predestination and election. What does it mean to waive the point? To refrain from pressing it, enforcing it, or putting it up for immediate consideration? He relinquished the point. Not that he gave up the doctrine, but he relinquished the point in the debate. I'll read what Newton said to Scott. 
I've chosen to waive the point, Newton says, because however true and necessary in itself, the knowledge and comprehension of it is not necessary to being a true Christian. Some of us came to Christ not really understanding or knowing anything about predestination or election. Newton goes on, though I can hardly conceive he can be an established, consistent believer without it, this doctrine is not the turning point between you and me. The nature of justification, however, the method of a sinner's acceptance with God are of much more immediate importance. And you go, what? <laughs> Wave the point? That's what I talk about all the time, predestination and election. That's the only point we argue, it seems, as Calvinists. But Newton ranked predestination and election secondary to issues of justification in, matter, in a matter of salvation. Not that, again, not that those things were untrue in Newton's mind, not that he had a shame about those things or didn't believe those things. He simply knew how to weigh the moment and press in on what was most needful for Scott at the time. But he was also a man who knew how to weed through questions. Now, Scott pelted him with questions, long letters, tons of deep technical questions. And Newton knew how to triage Scott's questions. And this takes wisdom, this takes discernment, this takes understanding. Um, maybe some doctors in the room, is Adam here or Dana? Maybe Brother Ed can, can talk to this. When you triage a patient, uh, he comes in and he's got splinters in his hands, he's got a broken leg, but he's also bleeding at the jugular. It would be foolish of us to start picking splinters out of his hand or trying to patch up his leg when he's bleeding at the neck. Scott was bleeding at the neck. He was a lost man. So issues of creedal subscription, issues of predestination and election, Newton knew how to skirt those questions and get to the heart of the matter. So suppose a man comes to you like Scott. What would be your emphasis would you die on the hill of creedal subscription? This man is a, not a 1689 Reformed Baptist. Do we die on that hill? Do we die on the hill of predestination and election? If he's lost, what hill do we die on? The gospel. The gospel. That's the hill. That's the hill. And so the entry point for learning anything about God is the gospel. If a man is lost, he can't comprehend anything about God rightly. So we can't be so myopic when we're dealing with people to argue for things that if a man believes them or not, does not keep him in or out of the kingdom of God. Does that make sense? If he's lost, he needs the gospel. Go ahead, brother. Absolutely. Praise the Lord. That's right. We can't de-emphasize those things, but we can't focus on them as the main thing. If a man is lost, he needs Christ. He needs the gospel. And Newton saw that, and he just went back and back and back to the gospel. So that leads me to a natural next point. Newton was resolved in his interaction with Scott to keep the gospel central. Newton always drove it back to the gospel. Newton saw the gospel as the answer to Scott's twisted ideas. Remember, Scott was a Socinian. He was an Arminian. He was a Pelagian. He was all those big title words that just make the hair on our neck stand up. When asked by Scott to defend the Trinity, Newton brought the issue back to the gospel. What natural-minded man 
can rightly understand the triune God. Newton brought it back to the gospel every time. Newton says, it's impossible for me to give you any, uh, you or anyone, personal and full satisfaction concerning my evidence because it's of an experimental nature. Now, what Newton means there by experimental is when the Holy Spirit changes your heart, he grants you faith to believe and understand things in Scripture that a natural-minded man cannot understand. A man can't come to a right understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity apart from regeneration, okay? And that's what Newton means by experimental truth. That's why he kept driving it back to the gospel for Scott. He knew that he needed new eyes. He needed new eyes. And Newton believed in total depravity. Man's nature is fallen. That means his mind is fallen. He can't reason about God rightly apart from regeneration. The natural person, he quotes this to Scott in 1 Corinthians 2.14. He quotes this verse to Scott. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So Newton says to Scott, you, you place the whole stress of your inquiries, your questions upon your reason. I'm far from discarding reason, Newton says, when it's enlightened and sanctified. But spiritual things must be spiritually discerned and can be received and discerned no other way for our natural reason is foolishness. And so he says, without an awakened state of mind, a divine like you, Scott, a reputed orthodox even, will blunder wretchedly even in the defense of his own position. So Newton realized that when you meet a man on the theological battlefield per se, apologetics can only strip a man of his armor, okay? Arguments over the Trinity, technical arguments over the eternal generation of the Son and all those things that we get into. Apologetics can only strip that man of his armor. It doesn't kill him, and it does not make him alive. The law kills a man, and the gospel makes him alive. Does that make sense? So if we approach a person who is wanting to argue about all these technical things about the Trinity and all these other things, and we know they're lost... We can apologetically strip them of their argument and walk away victorious. But if we don't kill them with the law and make them alive with the gospel, we've not done the complete work. We've left him as a man who's just naked on the battlefield. He's not dead before God in his sin. And he certainly can't be made alive by apologetic arguments. So Newton knew this. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't put that up there. Yeah, that's a quote. So Newton was resolved to keep the gospel central, and he was a man who recognized the, the nature of total depravity and experimental truth. Newton also kept good resources <clears throat> on hand. With Scott, he gave good books. He gave good books. He gave good books. I'm going to emphasize this. He didn't just recommend them. This was a piece of him he was giving away his own money, buying the resource, not just sending a link. He invested in this man. 
And there's a different flavor of the interaction when you buy a book and give it to someone. And especially if you take a book off your shelf where you've, you've sweat in that book and you've marked it up and the pages are bent and it smells like the dirt of your hands and you hand it off to someone and they read through it. So Newton kept good resources on hand. He uh, read the things he recommended, okay? He read the things he recommended. He was an intellectually honest person. He read the things he recommended. And I think that, that statement just needs to stand there just like it is, nice and terse. Um, don't recommend things you have not read. Don't do that. And he knew those resources well. He knew those resources well enough to say, you know, besides this long letter that I'm writing you, Scott, I send you a great book. And a part of it, he says, may perhaps explain my meaning better than uh, I've done myself. And he says, it seems to me so adapted, this book he gave Scott, to some things that have passed between us as if it were written on purpose. You've read your books, but do you know your books? Do you know them well enough to point out those places where you can prescribe medicine to a lost soul? And he gave books to Scott which he did not completely uh, agree with. He gave books to Scott which he did not completely agree with. This is a point of spiritual maturity, okay? Um, Newton said this of a book, unless I could replace this book with another, I know not if it would part, I know not if I would part with it for its weight in gold. And he goes on to explain to Scott that there's certain parts of this book that are really good for what Scott needed to hear, but the ending part of the book, he says, you know, basically if you agree that it's just, too much speculation and not useful. He said, I'm not going to fight you over that. that. That part of the book is just not, not good. Um, this takes spiritual maturity. We can recommend books that we don't completely agree with, right? We've sent someone a sermon by a Presbyterian before, right? Okay. Okay. All right. Just checking. Just checking. Uh, he was willing to interact with Newton over the books he gave. He didn't just launch theological bombs over the wall. Go, here you go, buddy. <laughs> Figure it out yourself. As exhausting and argumentative as Scott was, when Newton recommended a resource, he was willing to take the time to talk with Scott about it. Newton was genuine in his recommendations and willing to discuss those books at length. What would be more embarrassing for us than, and really tempting us to lie, than if we recommended a book we had never read and then were asked about it? Don't do that. Don't do that. So the point is this. Have good resources on hand. If you don't like to read, bookmark some YouTube sermons. Bookmark some podcasts. Bookmark some good sermons. Have an arsenal there ready to recommend to unbelievers, ready to recommend to um, those that are even maybe baby Christians and are dealing with certain doctrinal issues. Sermons above books to me are probably a better recommendation just because in a sermon you work through an issue a little differently than you would a book. And so sermons are the pinnacle to me of good resources. So earmark some good resources. Newton was keen to do this, and he was very good at it. So read good books, listen to good sermons. Uh, Newton was humbly self-reflective 
and a loving man. Um, there was something about Newton that could barely admit a fault in another person. He was far from a censorious kind of man. You know, that person who's always a fault finder, uh, who's always a critical spirit. He was a man so full of love and tenderness that in their interchange, Scott goes silent on Newton about after the fifth letter or so. Scott goes silent. He goes dark. And Newton doesn't think of Scott's uh, issue. Newton immediately thinks of himself as the offender. Newton says this, I'm loath for my own sake to charge your silence to any unwillingness of continuing that intercourse which I have been and still find myself desirous to improve on my part. He confesses to Scott plainly, a plain declaration of my sentiments has more than once put amiable and respectable persons to the full trial of their patience. Scott realized about himself that, I'm sorry, Newton realized about himself in the past that he had put people at trial with his opinions. He could press an issue too hard and burn someone out. He was self-reflective enough to realize that about himself. Now, Newton says of, of Scott, he says, you know, I, I hope you're not weary of me. Um, I hope that it's just, um, I hope you're willing to still call me your friend. I hope you're not weary of me. And so these sentiments came from a man who had patiently dealt with Scott's overbearing, densely argumentative, and exhaustive questioning. Anyone could plainly see Scott's demeanor, but Newton couldn't see it for loving the man. Newton couldn't see it for loving the man. Um, the biographer Richard Cecil, Newton's biographer, said this, Newton could live no longer than he could love. And Newton, in one sermon, it's, it's one of the most challenging thoughts I've had as a Christian. And I go back to this phrase over and over again in my Christian life. But Newton said something that's just stuck in my ribs for years. He says this, Whoever has tasted of the love of Christ and has known by his own experience the need and the worth of redemption, is enabled, yea, he is constrained to love his fellow creatures. He loves them at first sight. You feel the lemon juice in your eye with that statement? You feel the sting? When's the last time you love someone without a Massive checklist of prerequisites. This, 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 equals love. They're safe, equals love. Newton said, the gospel working in our hearts enables us to love his fellow creature at first sight. Who does that? Only Christians do that. Christians ought to love like that. It's a stark and convincing text. Uh, beloved, love is not resentful. 1 Corinthians 13, 5. It marks down no wrong. It thinks not over them. It takes into account no wrong suffered. It never supposes that a good action may have a bad motive. You ever, you ever met somebody who always is suspect of someone else's motives? And you see this repeatedly in Newton. Even when Scott deserted him, Newton was a humbly self-reflective and loving man. So we find in man a Newton who was self-reflective, not a fault finder, and a loving man without stipulations. 
a loving man without stipulations. And lastly, Newton was a friend near at hand on all occasions. Scott dropped the correspondence with Newton shortly after it began. It's about a six-month time frame, about eight letters. He dropped it about halfway. Scott says this when he went silent about the fifth of eight letters. When Newton waived the controversy, in other words, when he met a man who didn't want to fight, (laughs) I dropped the correspondence and utterly neglected his letters. From from that time, I avoided his company and all the while declined to hear him preach. When he met a man who he wanted to fight and the man wouldn't fight but love, he dropped the correspondence. But Newton didn't close the door. Newton didn't close the door. Newton kept a table for Scott, just like Christ kept the table for Newton, always willing to receive him back and lovingly converse with him over the truth. Just because Scott shut the door did not mean that Newton had to do the same. And this attitude ended up proving to be very, very useful in Scott's life. Scott would later say of Newton, uh, Mr. Newton has been useful to me. He has been and continues to be eminently so. In other words, at the top of the list. And I continually see great cause to bless God for giving me such a friend to be near at hand on all occasions. He was a friend not only with him just theologically, okay? He wasn't just a man trying to win his soul. He was actually his friend. He would eat with him. He would talk with him. He would spend time with him. He wasn't just a man who met for like two rams on a mountain, theological battle, and then they go their separate ways. So Newton, uh, Scott says of Newton, he was a friend to me near at hand on all occasions. So what was the result of this interaction? Well, it was around November 1777, nearly two years after Newton's last letter to Scott, that Scott ended up bowing the knee to Christ. Scott writes this, In short, though my objections were many, my anxiety was great and my resistance long, yet by the evidence which both from the word of God and my own meditation crowded upon my mind, and I was at length constrained to submit, And God knows with fear and trembling to allow those formerly despised doctrines a place in my creed. Newton ended up winning Scott, the Holy Spirit obviously, the ultimate and chief uh, operator in this. But Newton ended up winning Scott by not beating with a nail predestination into his head, but going back to the gospel in gentle, loving manner. This is nothing short of a statement of conversion for Scott. It was no just refinement of doctrine. It was an abandonment of all the error and all the misapprehensions he had, and it was an embracing of the truth. Light had dawned in Scott's heart. Truth was alive. And Newton spoke of Scott in his diary about this time that he received a visit from Mr. Scott, this man who abandoned Newton. After this long silence, and Newton thanked God that he saw in Scott a forward progress in the truth. And Newton says in his diary, he seems now an enlightened man and established in the most important parts of the gospel. 
God had done a work in Scott's heart. And several amazing things happened in their friendship after this. I'll let Scott tell it in his own words. Being at length convinced that Mr. Newton had been right all along and that I had been mistaken in the several particulars in which, he had dif- we, in which we had differed, it occurred to me that having preached these doctrines so long, he, Newton, must understand many things concerning them, to which I was a stranger. Now, therefore, though not without much prejudice and not less in the character of a judge than of a scholar, he was still being a little scrupulous, I condescended to be Newton's hearer and to occasionally attend his preaching. Newton records in his diary, I breakfasted yesterday with Mr. Scott. The Lord has answered my desires and exceeded my expectations in him. How gradually, yet how clearly has he been taught the truth of the gospel. What an honor and a mercy should I esteem it to be, any way instrumental in this good work. All praise be to God. And by the beginning of 1778... We find Scott frequenting Newton's midweek sermons and preaching eventually in Newton's pulpit. Newton says, My heart rejoiced and wondered, O my Lord, what a teacher art thou! How soon, clearly, and solidly is this man, Scott, established in the knowledge and experience of thy gospel, who but lately was a disputer against every point. I praise thee for him. Often in my faint manner have I prayed to see some of my neighbors of the clergy awakened. Thou hast answered prayer. Oh, may it please thee to add to their number. Now, Newton, Scott would come to hear Newton, and Newton would come to hear Scott. And this carried on throughout their lives. Newton says, last night I heard my friend Scott preach at Weston on 1 Timothy 4.8. Surely when thou wilt work, O Lord, none can let it uh, be, basically. None can stop you. What liberty, he says of Scott, what power and judgment in so young a preacher. May thy comforts fill his heart and thy blessings crowd his labors. So this is a, a wonderful change in their relationship. Scott is a converted man now, and they both go sit under one another's preaching. They have breakfast together. They develop a friendship. That leads me to part three in our final section, and we're going to have to hustle. The second amazing thing that happened in their friendship is that Scott eventually became the curate or pastor at Olney, where Newton was a pastor. Uh, It was in 1780. Mr. Newton, he says, was removed to London. Scott says Mr. Newton went to London. And he determined to put me in his place at Olney. Now, here's a former Socinian, former enemy of the gospel, now converted man. And the only person Newton can think of to fill his shoes, Thomas Scott. Thomas Scott. And so Scott was established there as the pastor in 1781. And he labored there for 16 years in the pulpit. This former opponent, this former Trinitarian denier, yet now wonderfully converted man. And what a testament of their friendship. What a testament of Scott's conversion to the truth. And so Scott labored there from 1781. I'm sorry, not not 16 years. 1781 to 1785, six years. That's my mistake, almost six years. 
He eventually followed Newton to London. Scott eventually followed Newton to London after this, and it's recorded that Scott would walk 14 miles every Sunday. He would take various services at various churches, and he ended up being the chaplain at Locke Hospital, which was the first hospital for syphilis patients. And it was there at London that Scott began to be used in a very mighty way in the kingdom of God. And so two things that were uh, done during that time by Scott, and this is the third thing about their amazing friendship, was these two men started the infamous Church Missionary Society in 1799. And over its 200-year history, it's attracted over 9,000 missionaries. It's still going to this day, I believe. And for 22 years, Scott labored until his death taking in training missionaries, instructing them, and sending them out. Scott also, during this time, wrote his commentary on the whole Bible, six-volume commentary on the whole Bible, went through multiple editions in the English language, and it was extremely popular in early American life. It was published in America in 1804. 1804. Uh, I don't know if you know who R.A. Torrey is, American evangelist preacher, But he heavily relied on Scott's commentaries when he wrote his little book, The Treasury of Scripture Knowledge. Now, if there's anything of value in any sermon that I preach, it's probably because of all the connections I make out of a little book called The Treasury of Scripture Knowledge. So Scott's deep study of the Word of God informs a man like R.A. Torrey in writing that treasury of scripture knowledge, which informs to this day you and I in sermons we preach. Scott was heavily influential in many people's lives and in many causes during this time. Uh, Among the many he conversed with and influenced, there were two notables in my mind. There were many others, but he influenced a man named William Carey. William Carey. Carey would say of Scott, If there be anything of the work of God in my soul, I owe much much of it to his preaching when I first set out in the ways of the Lord. Now, who is William Carey? Carey is a particular Baptist. He's the founder of the English Baptist Missionary Society. He's literally what we could call the father of modern missions. If you study missions in any way, you're going to rub up against William Carey. If you don't, the person teaching missions doesn't know what they're doing. Men of renown like Hudson Taylor, David Livingstone, Adoniram Judson would follow in Carey's footsteps. To this day, we feel the reverberations of Carey's first impulses, and those impulses would not have been what they are without Thomas Scott. Scott was influential and formative in Carey's life as a Christian, and many nations and many souls have been won through those efforts. But another man was a man named William Wilberforce. Who knows who William Wilberforce is? All right. We've got some historians here. British politician, evangelical abolitionist, leader of the movement to end the African slave trade. If you have a chance, go watch the movie Amazing Grace, put out, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago or so. Um, 
Who did Newton recommend Wilberforce sit under when Wilberforce was wrestling with God, much like, Newton, much like Scott was? Who did Newton say, you need to go sit under this man's preaching? None other than Thomas Scott. So repeatedly, Wilberforce would make these treks to Lock Chapel where Scott could be found. And he sat and he listened and he was transformed. It's not an understatement to say that both Newton and Scott were heavily influential in Wilberforce's conversion. Wilberforce so valued Scott's sermons that he's noted as having urged their publication, and they were, at Wilberforce's command. And as a circle of Christian friends gathered together, if you watch the movie Amazing Grace, you'll know who those men are. These people would have a profound impact on the country of England and the world itself to end the African slave trade. As those people gathered together, along with Wilberforce, who's now a Christian, who was there to support them in teaching and pastoral advice? John Newton and Thomas Scott. His interactions with Newton and with Scott made Wilberforce courageous to publicly avow his Methodism. Now, you remember that term we use. Methodism was just a common term at that time for Calvinism. Wilberforce made a public statement about those things, and it was his Calvinism, the doctrines of grace, that drove him to do what he did in Parliament. When Thomas Scott passed away and his son engaged in compiling his father's works, he notes that Wilberforce wrote a long letter to him publicly declaring his unfeigned respect for his father. Wilberforce closes this lengthy letter this way. Large indeed was the harvest he was allowed to gather in. Many are the works which have followed him, and rich doubtless will be his remuneration on that day when he shall hear the blessed address which I could for very, very few anticipate with equal confidence. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. I remain with real esteem and regard, my dear sir, your faithful servant, William Wilberforce. Well, we have to end our time together with Thomas Scott. Scott became a pastor after this stint in London for 20 years. He died in 1821 at the age of 74, having walked with the Lord on this earth for over 50 years. What we saw in this brief study of his life was a testimony to Newton's influence in laboring with a man in a search for truth. But more than that, I hope we saw the testimony of our great God to change a man's heart and use him mightily for his purpose and for his glory. And so we close with Thomas Scott's uh, tagline, my leading resolve was to search for the truth diligently and to embrace it wherever I found it and whatever it might cost. Any questions as we close our time with Thomas Scott? Uh, he would have, yeah, he would have been about 20, 26, 27. Yeah, yeah. It was about the time that he started uh, his fight with Newton, as many mid-20s would do, uh, many mid-20-year-olds would do, fighting with an older man because they know more. But, uh, 
Um, yeah, he's, he was about 26, 27, and he, he walked with the Lord about 50 years. So, yep. And Newton was a superior by about 25 years. He was about a 50-year-old man, you know, family man, pastor for that long. So he was picking on a guy with a lot of experience. Yeah. Any other questions? Yes, yes. So he, he, he labored in a town called Ravenstone initially. And um, when Newton left for London, he talked about the affection he had for those people. And his son's biography, uh, it talks about those people. It brings out several letters. And one of those was Wilberforce. Uh, Wilberforce was in London. But when Scott was in Ravenstone and in London, there were people who wrote, to, uh, to his son after the fact, after his father died, about the influence that he had on their lives. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's why uh, that little book I showed you, that really old book, that's the best one. It compiles pretty much everything we have on Scott together in one little volume. But yeah. So this man influenced you guys. Whether you know it or not, you read Matthew Henry's commentary on the Bible, you're reading a lot of Thomas Scott's thoughts. You, uh, you pick up a treasury of scripture knowledge and you see all those connections Back and forth. The Old Testament points to the New and all those things. You're, you're reading Thomas Scott. So here's a man who's a little known. And if you watch the movie Amazing Grace, you don't see him, but you hear him. You hear him because Newton and Scott were thick as thieves back then. So uh, wonderful conversion, wonderful man, but a forgotten man. So... He would... Yeah, so, you know, Scott's early life, he, he entered the ministry as an unconverted man and basically just left his flock to do whatever. Newton picks up the slack and walks over to Scott's parish, two and a half miles, and that was one of the really um, convicting things about Newton um, that Scott saw, that this man not only loved his own flock, but the one that, that, that Scott was uh, neglecting. And so when Scott was converted, he kind of mustered up this resolve that I'm not going to let that happen again. And so as he labored in, in London, he would, he would preach at various churches, and he would walk sometimes 14 miles every Sunday to, to different churches to preach. Mm-hmm. And he labored in a hospital with a disease that was utterly terrible. Um, inoculation back then was, I don't want to say it's a new thing, but it was dangerous. We get shots now, and it's like they throw them at us like darts, you know. Um, back then, it wasn't the case. Men would really die um, from stuff like that. So he was laboring in a very, very hard place. Any other thoughts or questions? You say, like back then, you know, they used to write letters, and they had time to really sit there and be thoughtful and mm-hmm. Yes. Yep. But how would you say, um, like, do you kind of think ahead? Kind of like with Mormons, I would meet them and I would kind of have like a talking point. I think you told me to do that one time. Yeah. Right.
Right. Now I have a little bit more peace about that. that right. Right. Yeah, yeah, you know, the last letter that um, Newton wrote to Scott, he said, you know, your silence, um, I'm going to have to leave it basically in God's hands. And maybe as we, as the Lord allows, we can pick this up voice to voice, basically says. Uh, we can talk about these things uh, one to one. If you're not able to do that, do I prefer letters? Yeah, I mean, it's nice to see someone's um, handwriting because you know it's them, it's particular to them. If you can't do that, then there's other means. But I do think writing something down makes you a little more thoughtful about what you're going to say. Um, you can send a text and then kind of correct that, you know, uh, send an email and correct that. It is in writing, but um, I think letter writing is, is a good practice. Um, it's not, not very popular. Not many people have the time to do that. But it does kind of squeeze down your thoughts into the most succinct things you want to say because your hand starts getting tired. You can just do this all day long. Enter, 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 enter. Quick comment. You said we don't really have the time to do that. But think about all the time that Newton sure. spent. I mean, those were his blocks. Oh, yeah. Just the daily tasks of life. Oh, yeah. Took so much longer. Yeah, that, so it's not that we like, don't have the time. Yeah. It's like walking to an ad hoc. That's right. That's right. Well, he says that constantly over and over in his letters. He says, I'm writing you at leisure, but I, I'm so pressed with other obligations. And that's something I didn't work into the points was the fact that he kept Scott as a priority. Sometimes we can shirk those people and say, you know, I'm busy. I'll get to you when I can. But Newton kept a, a friendly heart toward him. He was, pressing, uh, he was pressing toward those things because he loved Scott. And so he did spend time to, uh, to write a letter. <clears throat> and so... Yeah, that, that's a point I didn't bring out, but that, that is definitely something you see in, in Newton. Well, I hope these things encourage you, 10 points. Uh, there's many more. Go get uh, Scott's work, The Force of Truth, and learn how to be a master apologist and Christian with people who are lost and need the gospel. So, um, no other questions, let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you so much for this time we spent, the short time we spent in understanding Thomas Scott and Newton's influence in his life. I pray, Lord, that we would be encouraged, just like those of faith in Hebrews 11, Lord, that we would go on to um, follow in their footsteps and their examples, and Lord, help us to be useful in this world for the gospel, for your kingdom, for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.